second season of the History of the European Theatre podcast, The Theatre of Rome. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 25, From Greek to Roman, Part 1. Hello everyone, welcome back. Having spent the last 24 episodes discussing the theatre of ancient Greece, I'm now going to move on to the theatre of Rome. If you're joining us for the first time and haven't listened to season one of the podcast, then I do recommend that you pause here and listen to the back catalogue. Although the Roman theatre is a subject in its own right, it was heavily influenced by Greek theatre and there will be plenty of references back to the theatre in Athens, and particularly the great playwrights Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes and Menander. Well, I won't be repeating the full details of their plays and the story of their influences. However, if anything Roman is your thing and you're not bothered about the Greeks, then that's fine too. Just carry on listening and dip back if you feel the urge. There should be enough in this for you as well. Before starting research for this season, I had no experience of Roman theatre apart from visits to a few ruins while on various holidays in Italy and Africa. Roman plays are rarely, if ever, performed these days, as it's not held in the same reverence as the ancient Greek theatre. I have to confess I came to the subject with some trepidation. Was there enough to say to warrant such attention, or were the Romans just marking time, copying the Greeks, adding nothing to the development of European theatre? We all know the Romans have a love of the circus and its ultraviolet games, and I use the word advisedly in their context. The gladiatorial fights, murder of Christians and others, and the baiting of animals hardly qualifies to our mind as games, but it was the dominant form of entertainment in its time. In the usual run of Roman histories, there's not much mention of the theatre. When we look back to antiquity in respect of theatre, it always seems to be about the Greeks, and the Romans are seen as nothing but their inheritors, and some would say they were nothing more than bad copyists at that. As with the Greeks, the Romans held many ideas and beliefs that are quite alien to us. Many of their actions and entertainment seem, on the face of it, quite incomprehensible. But once again, I'm hoping that if we can put the theatre of their time in its historical and cultural context, then we can get a better appreciation and understanding of what it meant to them and why it deserves its place in the arc of theatrical history. So I'll say up front that thankfully I soon found that there was plenty of interest and although theatre was not woven into the fabric of life quite the way that it was in ancient Athens, it was important to a large number of people and it does have an influence on the early medieval theatre and ultimately on the Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights. There was a large and enthusiastic appreciation of theatre throughout the Roman period, Republic and Empire, and it reflects on the questions and values, ideals, culture and politics of their time. So, and not without some relief, I can approach this as part of the long view of the development of theatre. The theatre of Rome, I think, deserves its place. To get us started, and to the point where we have records about Roman theatre, I'm going to summarise the history of the rise of Rome. Although this will take two podcast episodes, it's still a very high-level summary, just for the purposes of putting the theatre in context. If you would like a fuller history of the rise and fall of Rome, then of course you can find this in many books, documentaries and podcasts. It's an enormous and endlessly fascinating story, and as we're in the podcast world, I can do no better than recommend Mike Duncan's History of Rome podcast, where he told the Roman story based on the works of the historians of the time. Mike is one of, if not the father of history podcasting, and I for one owe him a lot. 
Listening to the history of Rome was one of the main ways I got turned on to podcasts, and the germ of the idea for this podcast probably goes back that far. I can only admire and try to emulate him, as many podcasters do. In this first part of my introduction to the Theatre of Rome, I'm going to cover the development of the Roman Republic and the very earliest theatrical forms. Then, in the next episode, I'll continue the story through to the establishment of the Roman Empire in the last years of the pre-Christian era and look at some of the early playwrights, where we have very limited records, before we get to the big three playwrights of Roman theatre. Before we start, I should note that my Latin is no better than my ancient Greek, so I may well butcher some pronunciations. Latin is of course not quite as difficult as ancient Greek, so I will hopefully do somewhat better than with the Greek. If you're able to provide any corrections and better pronunciations, I will gratefully acknowledge them. The official start of Rome, the founding of the city, was traditionally dated at 753 BCE. But the Romans themselves pretty much glossed over the next two and a half centuries as they were ruled by seven kings, the last three of whom were Etruscans. These people originated from Etruria, a region now roughly the same as modern-day Tuscany, with some territory in West Umbria and northern Lazio. Their influence was quite widespread for its time, with Rome being in the southern edge of their initial expansion. Up to about 500 BCE, their influence expanded south towards the boot of the peninsula, north into the Alpine regions and on to the island of Corsica. They are of interest to us here because it's thought that the Romans took on many of their cultural attributes. And it's with the Etruscans that we can start to trace the history of theatre in Rome. Initial developments in what was to become Italy seem to have occurred along the same lines as they did in ancient Greece and Egypt. Festivals to mark significant agricultural moments of the year, be that hopefulness for the next harvest or thanks for nature's bounty later in the year, were held at the local village level and gave rise to singing, dancing and mimicry. Elements of the festivals seem to be represented in early art, in the form of pottery decorations, of which the Etruscans produced a lot and the archaeological evidence is good. Unfortunately, very little else is understood about the Etruscans themselves. Their language used Greek characters, but is still largely a mystery to us. All that survives is about 10,000 epigrammatic writings, spanning from the 7th to the 1st century BCE. That may sound a lot, but they're very brief and repetitious, and we think are mainly dedications to the dead and for votive offerings. Without substantial writings or a Rosetta Stone to unlock the translations, we have to rely on tomb paintings, the decoration on pottery and other archaeological evidence which, wonderful as it is, has its limitations when it comes to understanding the cultural life of a people. During the Etruscan period and after, there were Greek colonies on the Italian peninsula and on Sicily, so it's reasonable to assume that there was interaction and they took something from the fledgling Greeks. Did they include traditions from their mythology, religion and cultural activities? We simply can't say for sure, but the evidence in the form of pottery, household and personal implements and weapons suggests so. The portraits on vases are silhouette profiles, suggesting that the people had ancestors of Phoenician or Anatolian origin, but by the 8th century BCE they were settled in the area of Tuscany and were displaying the artistic and creative skills of a civilised and settled people. In that lack of firm evidence, it's assumed that much of their early entertainments and celebrations would have been handed down in oral tradition and improvised for specific occasions. Going on the artistic evidence, 
It's thought that some of these celebrations were accompanied by verse readings of a comic and ribald nature, performed by a masked actor or clown. The Roman commentator Horace, writing in the 1st century BCE, suggests these verses were the basis for Roman farce, but it also sounds like they have some shared elements with the satire play. But again, it's not possible to trace influences or their development of such a form explicitly. Much has been speculated and perhaps somewhat glorified about the Etruscans because we know so little about them. And speculation here about who influenced who is not very productive or necessary. But the suggestion is that they were similar to the Greeks in many ways and maybe directly influenced by them. They in turn influenced the local Roman people during their period of dominance until the two groups became very close if not indistinguishable. The Etruscan civilization lasted about 300 years, so relatively brief in terms of global history, and until more significant evidence is uncovered or their language deciphered, they will remain a footnote in European history, which is probably less than they deserve, as their influence on early Rome probably has a lot to do with Roman character and thought that was to come to dominate the known world. The last Etruscan king, Tarquin the Proud, was driven out in 509 BCE and the Republic of Rome was established. It was a republic led by a group of magistrates from whose ranks two consuls were elected as joint leaders. They served a one-year term, replaced by the next pair of consuls in elections the following year. The most powerful group in republican politics was the Senate. Their numbers varied at different times, but roughly several hundred senators were elected from a group of ex-magistrates, all of whom came from the highest social class. We should be clear that this was never democracy in the Greek way. This was an autocratic rule by an established socially higher class. It was a system of government that was to last more or less in the same form until the empire was established some 500 years later. It wasn't always stable and suffered from much infighting by the rich and political factions, but it was the basis for a complex and sophisticated society that was able to expand its influence and therefore acquire wealth across Europe and North Africa. It's towards the end of the first period of expansion from roughly 500 to 300 BCE that we find the first evidence of Roman theatre. Livy, the great historian writing in Rome over the cusp of the BCE and CE periods, refers to an event held in 364 BCE. He writes that at that time the city was suffering from a visitation of the plague. As attempts to end it by human means, and presumably he means rudimentary medical treatments, and offerings to the gods had failed, scenic shows were organised to try to appease the gods. Such entertainments were a novelty to the warlike people of Rome, who previously only knew the circus games. At the invitation of the Romans, players from Etruria performed dancing to music of pipes in Etruscan style. The moves went down well with the locals, who started copying them and exchanging banter between themselves as they did so. This developed into improvised verse with gesture to accompany the music. Although this event was a very small scale, it was a great success and was soon copied and grew in popularity. Another interesting footnote from Livy is his comment that the artists were called Istia the Etruscan for player. In Latin, that became known as histrionus, from which we get our word histrionic. Unfortunately, Livy's description of the sort of performance that the event originated is obscure and much argued over. He says that satura were performed, rich in musical or poetic measures, written for music, for the pipe and with movement. 
satyr is often translated as melody, but it's also associated with satire. There's been uncertainty over the meaning almost since Livy wrote it, with some commentators from antiquity believing that the root implies a satiric or comic song accompanied by movement, the word satura being related to the Greek satire. So it's possible that this early form in Rome was derived from the satire play, albeit via the Etruscans. Although Livy doesn't link it directly to the development of theatre as he knew it, it is the first Roman cultural activity we have record of, and it's interesting that the influence is said to have come from Etruria and the Etruscans. The story is already nearly 400 years old when Livy is recounting it, and it may be a recognition of the cultural influence of the Etruscans rather than a factual event, but Livy clearly thought it was worth retelling, be it fact or foundation myth. He goes further to suggest that performance of this type soon became a profession, with the city folk who first copied the Etruscans soon going back to their entertainments in the circus, leaving a committed few to promote the satura as part of the religious ceremony. It's a vague picture, and it doesn't really get any clearer for the next couple of hundred years. I do find it interesting that the Etruscans come up here again. As Livy looked back onto what was already the distant past, he chose to recognise that outside influence, which suggests there was a kernel of truth in it, or at least he believed there was. The question of who influenced who between the Greeks, the Hellenised people on the Italian peninsula, the Etruscans and the indigenous people of Rome is something we can't be completely clear on. I think that, given the inevitable contact between the Greek settlements in southern Italy and Sicily with the Etruscans, it's tempting to think that the early influences on Roman theatre were Greek, but that they came via the Etruscans, and it was only later Romans that came into direct influence from the Greek poets. But that was still a couple of hundred years away. At this very early point in 364 BCE, and evidenced in the Etruscan art of the time, there is mention of musical accompaniment on the pipes, or tibia. This is a a double-pipe woodwind instrument that used a reed to pronounce the vibrations, so much like a modern oboe, and those vibrations produced a piercing buzz at two different pitches, which could be played separately or in tandem. It was pretty similar to the Greek aulus uh, that was already being used from earliest recorded times as part of a performance. So, as with the aulus, the sound and the harmonies are still likely to be more akin to the modern Middle Eastern music than post-Renaissance Western harmonies. Music is a thread through the developing forms of entertainment. Again, this is very much in the early Greek mould, but not necessarily aware of it and the emphasis always seems to be on entertainment rather than religion, and here we do see a clear difference from the early Greeks. The evidence suggests that from early on, the basis of entertainment was crude comic jests that were little more than extended jokes. They may even have become something like a variety show, where the individual skits were loosely related. This could be the expansion of the entertainment derived from the Satura, or it may have been an independent development in the Hellenised regions of Italy. It's just really not possible to say precisely how this developed. When the village festivals became urbanised formal celebrations with the involvement of the state, they became linked to religious festivals. But there is little or no suggestion of the deep-rooted religious nature of the Greek tragedy and the Dionysian festivals. Some direct influence from Greece, or at least from the Greek colonies in southern Italy, comes in the 4th century BCE. There is some evidence of a form now referred to as Atalan farce, 
that originated in the Campania region. That's the area south of Rome from Naples to Calabria, which includes Pompeii and Herculaneum. This type of play was still little more than comic skits, but used stock characters and is likely to have had a close resemblance to Greek middle comedy. The likelihood of influence in this case seems to be a logical conclusion, as the region is closer to the Greek colonies in the south and on Sicily, and we can reasonably expect that there was significant cultural exchange between them and the local population. It's likely that this type of drama was then taken to Rome by travelling troops, and then taken up by the Romans in the first half of the 3rd century BCE. From this rose the tradition that gave us Commedia dell'arte in the Italian Renaissance period, the common threads being the comic nature of the performance, the use of stock characters and mask. Pottery images show characters with a very close resemblance to those of Commedia dell'arte characters, and it's possible that here we have a direct link from Greek middle and new comedy through Rome to Commedia dell'arte and the Italian Renaissance. In Rome, there had been a long tradition of public holidays ostensibly to honour the gods, but which in practice had more to do with appeasing an unruly populace. Traditionally, such holidays were traced back to Tarquin, the last Etruscan king, but over the years had become formalised public holidays. Romans had no concept of a weekend, so the public holidays were an important part of the social calendar. Of course, as in Greek society, they probably only made a difference to those who could afford to enjoy them, and as a slave or agricultural worker, you probably saw little, if any, benefit. For the urban citizen, they provided either an important break from the daily grind, or a way to make some money from the gathering crowds at the games. For the rich and connected, they were opportunities to see and be seen for sponsorship and self-promotion, and, of course, they were still connected to some religious rites and ceremony. The city leaders, and later the leaders of the ever-expanding Roman territory, held a fundamental belief in a policy of bread and circuses, or as we might say now, food and entertainment. The state was provider of both, with the quite explicit aim to keep the population subdued by making sure they had basic food and something to take their mind off daily hardships. The games were established in this very early period, and the food part came later in 140 BCE, when the state established the grain dole that allocated an allowance of grain to all citizens. The phrase about bread and circuses was first coined by Juvenal in his satires, written about 100 BCE, in a highly critical sense, suggesting that the populace cared little for their heritage and governance as long as they were fed and entertained. Although the dole was amended over the years and was at times a huge burden to the state, it continued to operate late into the period before the fall of the Western Empire at about 395 CE. So, from the earliest Roman period, entertainment, as well as sport, was associated with the games that were state-sponsored and used as a tool for social appeasement. In the mid-4th century BCE, so at the time the Greeks were enjoying revivals by the recently dead Aristophanes and before Menander was born, the Romans got their first theatre. Well, not exactly a theatre, but a temporary stage erected in the Circus Maximus. As it was the first home of Roman theatre, the Circus Maximus needs a mention here. It's thought that the circus was built in the late 7th or early 6th century BCE, in the period of the Etruscan kings. It was built for chariot racing, so it was a stadium built around a racing track, giving it the shape of a very elongated rectangle with curved short sides. 
The original construction was in wood, and the structure remained wooden through many repairs and replacements of sections over many years. And only some very specific elements, like the turning posts in the middle of the short sides of the racing track, were being made of stone. A stone structure was eventually built by Emperor Trajan towards the end of the 1st century CE, although part of that collapsed after a couple of hundred years, killing 13,000 people. It wasn't until the 6th century that the circus fell into disrepair, and as with many monuments in Rome, the stone was plundered for other more prosaic building projects. The site in Rome is now a flattened area, with the foundations some six metres below ground, thanks to the passage of time and the boggy nature of the ground. In its prime, the circus was the host of the Ludi Romani Games, held to honour the god Jupiter. These games were held every September and lasted several days, but its use soon expanded to include hosting specific days for other festivals and their associated game. It was the largest circus in Rome and the Empire and could hold something like 150,000 spectators. The temporary stage was for the performance of comic skits, probably initially as a form of interval entertainment between the chariot racing, animal baiting and fighting that was the mainstay of the Roman games. It seems that the Romans liked their brutal games mixed with a bit of comedy, which is one of the stranger aspects of Roman society for us to comprehend. The Circus Maximus was also used for public executions, so it's possible that these comic actors had to come on between an execution and whatever the next mode of gratuitous violence was going to be. I know we shouldn't try to apply modern sensibilities to the ancient world, but really? How did that work? It's one of those impenetrable aspects of antiquity for me. As a theatre, the circus lacked the planned acoustics of the Greek amphitheatre, which suggests that entertainments must have relied on music and visual gags. But it seems that the theatre and the performances were popular and became a regular feature of the games. To jump ahead for a moment, it's worth noting that by the turn of the Christian era, there were more than 50 designated holiday days, which all had circuses' games associated with them. All of these needed their share of performers, actors, dancers, clowns, jugglers and the like to augment the various games that were held to mark each occasion. In addition to the established traditional holidays, there were also games held to celebrate victories, the passing of great lives or, well, it feels like just about any reason they could come up with. Performers and entertainers became a recognised part of society, although never a particularly well-regarded one. At some point, the theatrical entertainments moved out of the Circus Maximus and used temporary stages and seating at other sites for their presentations. The reasons for this move are not clear, and the city authorities seem to have had a problem with the independent theatre from the off. Officially, the theatre was seen as a corrupting influence, but it was tolerated, even licensed, and the reluctance to allow permanent gatherings places may have been more to do with fears of allowing sedition to breed amongst large groups of citizens. It wasn't until 55 BCE that a permanent theatre was allowed to be built. Theatrical activities seem to have had an attachment to specific gods, so the site of the performance would be moved to the front of a temple, a statue or a dedicated civic space as appropriate. There may also have been a practical consideration here. Temples and platforms in front of statues provided a raised area that could be used for a performance. In this basic form, all that's needed is that raised area or stage, known as the scania in Latin, and a space for the spectators to stand, called the cavia in Latin. The scania could have a backdrop, the scania frons, 
perhaps the columns of the temple itself or a hung curtain, and a space in front of the backdrop that became known as the proscenium. Given the size and the location of some Roman temples, audiences could have been quite large, up to 1,300 people has been suggested in some speculations. Even the Forum, Rome's historic central square and meeting point for the masses, was used as a temporary theatre for productions of Plautus and possibly others. Temporary stages and seating may have been used in combination with temple sites, or as a standalone temporary theatre where performance elsewhere was not possible. With no evidence of these structures, which were temporary by nature and presumably made of wood, so nothing survives and anything more is pure conjecture. Scholars have speculated, and on what seems like scant evidence, suggested that the stage area was a raised wooden platform on pillars, and that possibly curtains were used to cover the supporting structure. At about 150 BCE, there are a couple of records of senators erecting elaborate stages to provide theatrical entertainments as part of celebrations. A stage set up by censor Cassius Longinus in 155 BCE was said to be a very grand structure, including columns that made it sound something close to a Greek skene. As the Senate had to order it to be taken down after the end of the celebrations, there's a hint that perhaps Cassius Longinus or another interested party was trying to retain it permanently. That's interesting, as the censor was a magistrate with particular responsibility for overseeing government finances, the censors of the population and public morality. I can't help but speculate on some conflict of interest there, that if the theatre was held in such ill repute generally, but enjoyed by Cassius Longinus himself, he was, I suspect, an interesting and possibly conflicted character, if the desire to retain the structure did indeed originate from him. In 145 BCE, Lucius Mummius won a victory in Corinth. He destroyed the city, killed the male inhabitants and sold the women and children into slavery. Corinth was a rich mercantile town and its wealth was transported back to Rome. It seems that he had no appreciation of the finer things. When chipping off the valuable art of the city, he was said to have commented to the transporters that if anything was lost or damaged in transit, they would be responsible for replacing the items. Apparently, he had no concept of the uniqueness of art. The raising of Corinth was to be a lesson to the now subdued Greeks, and cruelty employed like this was not uncommon, although out of character for Lucius Mummius, who for the rest of his distinguished career showed leniency in many of the actions and judgments compared to his contemporaries. In the case of Corinth, he was working to commands from the Senate, who were keen to both make sure the Greeks understood their new position and to emasculate the city as a trading rival. But whatever his feelings, it was the victory that brought all of Greece under Roman rule, so a generous celebration was expected and deserved from the Roman perspective. Lucius Mummius was accordingly awarded a triumph by the Senate. The triumph was the official celebration of a victory, where the victorious army would process through the city with their war booty, including the captured leaders and others on their way to a life of slavery. The triumph was often used by the commander of the army for publicity and assisted in any political ambitions that they may have had, and many of them did. The processions were often accompanied not only by religious acolytes, but entertainers moving with the procession or at points on the route where moments from Roman history, mythic stories or recent events associated with the war were staged. As part of the triumph for Lucius Mummius, an elaborate theatre was built, the most elaborate seen in the city so far. What made this theatre notable was not only its grandeur and its improved acoustics, but that it included seating for the audience, 
implying that previously the audience generally stood or were accommodated by wooden seating that was also of a temporary nature. Perhaps the idea for seating came from Lucius Mummius and his travels through Greece, where he would have seen the Greek theatres. We'll never know, but this seems to have been a real step forward in theatre design for the Romans. However, like its predecessors, this structure was also ordered to be destroyed at the end of the triumph. At this time, all the theatrical activity in the city was formally controlled by two officials appointed from the patrician class, known as the Curuli Adelis. They were magistrates given specific responsibilities for an annual term of office and, in the case of the theatre and the games, they looked after licensing, law and order at the festivals and supervising the construction of any buildings like the temporary theatres. All of which meant, of course, that they had control of the budgets too. The state sponsored most of these events, so any expenses were applied for through these special appointees. Before this, we know very little of the financing of Roman theatre. Some plays included production notes that suggest plays were purchased by actor-producers, who then hired actors and musicians. Other requirements, like props and costumes, were bought on a commercial basis. The magistrates would acquire any state funding that was available, and there was probably an element of commercial sponsorship, but the basis of this isn't clear. As we get towards the end of the Republic and closer to the Empire, theatre is finding its place in Rome, but it's still of a temporary, even fleeting nature that leaves little record for us to examine. Roman society had become very developed and sophisticated, but theatre lags behind this and continues to provide little more than light comic relief. A form and a style that is Roman, or at least Greco-Roman, has developed, but its exact nature is difficult to grasp. By the last 150 years of the pre-Christian era, the ever-expanding Republic was beginning to run into trouble and would soon be replaced. While all this was happening, plays were being adapted and written and we finally get something of the Roman theatre that we can read on the page. Next time, the story of Rome and Roman theatre continues as we move towards the period of empire, where different forms of theatre become very popular, tragic and comic plays were written, a few of which survive, and where we start to get to know about some of the playwrights of the time. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Please join us on Twitter for more theatre-related stuff, and if you'd like to access the transcripts of the episodes or some more audio content, then please find us on patreon.com and sign up there. At the time of publication of this episode, there are two bonus episodes available. You can listen to my take on Aristotle's poetics and the story of his life there. In addition, you can get access to the transcripts for the episodes in Season 1. I'll be adding more in the coming weeks, and you will have access to all of them as soon as you join up. Thanks for your support there, or on ko-fi.com, all of which helps me keep the lights on here. I'll be back soon for the conclusion of the introduction to Roman theatre. (laughs) 